0: It's a joy to be with you again this morning to share the Word of God together. And uh, if you were out of town or unable to join us on January 2nd, I preached a sermon titled Starving Ourselves on Apple Pie. And it was the first part of a two sermon message on fasting. And I'm calling today's sermon Feasting Ourselves on Jesus. And this is the second part of that same message. And then on January 29th, this coming Saturday, we want to invite any of you that are able and prepared to join us in fasting together as a church, as we seek the Lord's guidance for us personally and as a church body in this coming year. Now, uh, if you haven't heard the sermon that I preached on the 2nd, it was really about what keeps us from making fasting a regular part of our lives. It was to answer the question, what do we hunger for most, God or the world? And we saw that oftentimes it's a hunger for the world that's what keeps us from a hunger for God. We read from First John chapter 2 that talks about a love for the world, being opposed to a love for God. And this love for the world comes to us through three main temptations, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And some of these temptations are obviously sinful, like the list of fleshly desires that are found in Galatians 5, but the danger, the greater danger lies for us in those good things that also keep us from a hunger for God. So Jesus told a parable about a great banquet where guests give all kinds of reasons for why they can't come anymore. Someone had just bought a piece of land. Another had purchased some oxen. And still another had gotten married. And it was these good things that kept them from the banquet table that really were starving them from a hunger for God. And, uh, and so we too can be, come so full or keep our hearts so full of good things that we also starve ourselves From a hunger for God. And and so today's message really builds on that sermon and talks about how the spiritual discipline of fasting really flows out of a deep hunger for God. Otherwise, it just doesn't make any sense to fast. So here's my desire for today. First, I want to give a biblical basis for what fasting looked like in the Old Testament so that we can understand how Jesus shifted its meaning for New Testament believers. And then we'll look at two benefits of fasting the first is found in what we fast against, and the second is what, and found in what we fast for. And so with that background, I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, where we'll read our main text for today. And to give you a little bit of context for this passage, John the Baptist's disciples have come to Jesus, and they've said, why are your disciples not fasting according to the customs of the time? And Jesus' response in this section of Scripture is, really provides the basis for why we continue to fast today. So we'll read Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 14, and go through verse 17. So as we begin, can you please stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word? Matthew 9, 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Let's pray. Father, we just got done singing it. We said, make me a vessel. Fill me with new wine. And here we read that in this passage. Pray, Father, that you would speak powerfully through your word today. We need to hear from you. We don't need to hear any man's words. We need to hear the word of God. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would, you would make clear what it is you would want us to hear today? Please get me out of the way, and I pray, Father, that you would, in the end, show us what true fasting looks like. We thank you that we can be in your presence. We thank you that we can be privileged to enjoy and take from your word today. It is a feast. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can have. You can be seated. Now, we're going to spend some more time in Matthew 9 a bit later, but let me start with a very obvious conclusion from this passage, because Jesus makes it clear that his followers will fast after his departure. It's not a matter of if, but when. And so, the church of the first century carried on the practice of fasting that has continued into the church up to today. And so, the same question is for us. It's not a matter of if we should fast, but when should we fast. And so, before we get to that, we need to first go back and look at how, what fasting looked like in the Old Testament because this really gives us the basis for those old wineskins that Jesus is referring to. And so in Zechariah 8.19, the prophet mentions four annual fasts that the Israelites observed corporately every year, one in the fourth month, one in the fifth month, one in the seventh, and one in the 10th month. And each of these times of corporate fasting were in addition to any times of individual fasting that the Israelites observed. And so they were well aware of the practice of fasting in those days. And there were so many different reasons that they were told to fast in Scripture. But the most basic purpose was to humble themselves in the sight of the Lord. Now, some of the most famous fasts in the Old Testament are when Moses fasts for 40 days in the presence of the Lord in order to receive the the law. Uh, The people of Nineveh fast at the warning of Jonah to repent of their sins and to plead for mercy. King Jehoshaphat calls for a fast to ask for God's help in battle. Ezra proclaims a fast to seek the Lord's guidance and protection in travel. And then Esther asks her friends to fast along with her as she prays and asks God for favor with the king. And in each of these examples, the people needed something from God. They humbled their hearts through prayer, and they asked God to respond to those prayers. And really, the same truth is the same case for us today. But like any spiritual discipline for New Testament believers, Ours is done through the filter of Christ's sacrifice for us, and so this really kind of shifts the manner in which we fast today. Now we need to first see what did fasting really involve in the Old Law, and to do that, we look at Leviticus 16, which talks about the Day of Atonement and gives kind of a baseline for what fasting looked like. Now the Day of Atonement is called Yom Kippur by Jews of today, and it still stands as their most high and holy day of the year. It's a day of solemn repentance from sin. And in Leviticus 16:29 through 31, it says, And it shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves, and shall do no work, neither the native nor the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to, to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. Now notice, Here that the word fast isn't even used in this passage. Instead, the word afflict is used. And this concept of affliction is tied to the concept of fasting throughout the Old Testament. And in fact, some of your Bibles might even have a footnote at the bottom here that says that affliction here refers to fasting. Now we can also notice that affliction is also tied here to a Sabbath of solemn rest. And Casey just spent the last two weeks telling us about the biblical basis for the Sabbath laws. And really, Old Testament fasting had a similar purpose. It was to reorient our bodies and remind us that we are not God. And so, fasting for the Hebrews was much more than just going without food for a 24 hour period, it also involved abstaining from activities such as work and sex. And the reason is is that God was calling the Israelites on these days of fasting to humble themselves fully and to seek His face. They weren't to pursue their own business, i.e., work, or to seek their own pleasure, i.e., food and sex but they were to fully put their eyes on the Lord and focus this day on solemn rest and prayer. And this type of fasting was so easily abused by the Israelites. We read from Isaiah 58 a few weeks ago where we saw that the Israelites were trying to mask their self-living with religion. And in this passage, the Israelites are just going through the motions. They're fasting, they're offering sacrifices to God, but they're not being heard. And why is that? Because Isaiah tells them that on the day of their fast, they're seeking their own pleasure and pursuing their own business. So they boiled fasting down to a behavior change, i.e. abstaining from food, but they neglected the greater heart change that fasting is really all about. And that's humbling themselves in the sight of the Lord. And why does God want fasting to be about humbling ourselves? Because he wants to remind us that he is the only source of true life. And then this concept of affliction and hunger is tied together together in Deuteronomy chapter eight, where Moses reminds the Israelites of their trek through the wilderness. In verse three of that chapter, Moses says, and God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now the word that Moses uses here for humbled, God humbled you, is the exact same word that he uses for afflicted in Leviticus during the day of atonement. And so in other words, we could replace humbled with afflicted and say, and God afflicted the Israelites with hunger so that they may know that they don't live by flesh, but by God. And we know from other Old Testament verses that God doesn't afflict from his heart or grieve the children of man. He's a good father. And so the affliction and grief that he brings is for the good of his people. And we too need to be afflicted to be humbled and hungry at times, to remind us where our true source of manna really comes from. And so God knows that we're not too different from the Israelites. I mean, they long to go back to Egypt, to their cucumbers and melons and pots of meat. But we too try to stuff ourselves so full of the things of the world that we tend to forget that we don't live on these temporary things, but on God himself. So this understanding of Deuteronomy 8 is really the basis for why we fast today. remind ourselves that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now we spent part one of the message a few weeks ago looking at how a hunger for uh, the the world is what keeps us from hungering God in this way. And now we're going to shift and look at the example of Christ who lived out a hunger for God. And it begins with a fast. See, when Jesus started his earthly ministry, the first thing that he did was go into the wilderness and fast for 40 days before being tempted by Satan. And in resistance to Satan's temptation to make his own bread out of stone, Jesus quotes from this very exact passage of Deuteronomy 8 that we just read about man living on God's word rather than bread. See, while Jesus had gone for 40 days without eating food, he certainly hadn't gone 40 days without being sustained by God's word. In fact, he had fasted from earthly food so that he could feast on heavenly food. He knew he needed one more than the other. And Jesus' 40 days of fasting had sharpened his reality on the temporary nature of the flesh versus the eternal nature of the word of God. And it also provided a fulfillment of the law through Christ's fasting in the wilderness that the Israelites could never accomplish during their own wilderness test. See, the Israelites had also been in the wilderness going through a test, time of testing. But they'd craved food that wouldn't last. And they forsook the God who'd offered them a land flowing with milk and honey. But Jesus, in contrast, had been offered all the kingdoms of the world. And yet he entrusted himself to the one who placed all things under his feet. He knew there was no shortcut to glory. The road was going to run straight through suffering and death. But as he offered his body broken for us, that bread from heaven offered us a different food to crave. And as he poured out his blood of the new covenant, Jesus offered us a new wineskin to drink from. And that takes us back to that passage in, Rome, in Matthew 9 that we just read from. It said, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. See, fasting had been around for the Jews for centuries. And, and that was the old wineskins. The, 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 those old wineskins were the, the, the days of affliction. It was, it was to humble their hearts and grieve their sins so that they would look forward to a Messiah who would come and rescue them from those sins. But when he, the bridegroom, came, the new wine came with him. And it was not a time to fast for that time. It was a time to work because Jesus knew he was gonna be on the earth for such a short time and he had to be about his father's business. He knew that he was going to soon return to heaven and he would stay there until his second coming. And during that second period of waiting, his followers would fast once more. And why is that? Because like the days of old, we too need to humble our hearts, grieve our sins, and look forward to our coming king. But this time when he returns, our fasting is going to be done because the feast will be served. And that day is not yet, though. And so we fast. Now, John Piper ties these concepts together beautifully in his book, A Hunger for God. He says... Fasting is a future-oriented counterpart to the past-oriented celebration of the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. By eating, we remember the past and say, Jesus has come. But by not eating, by fasting, we look to the future with an aching in our heart saying, yes, he came, and yes, what he did for us is glorious, but precisely because of what we've seen and what we've tasted, we feel keenly his absence as well as his presence. And I love this picture of fasting. It really helped me understand it in terms of spiritual practice. When we partake in communion, we are remembering that Jesus came as the Passover lamb. And when we abstain in fasting, we're looking forward to him as the bridegroom of love. See, in the same way, just as Jesus gave a new reason for the Passover when he offered his body and blood at the Last Supper, so Jesus gives a new reason for fasting by tying it to the great anticipation that comes with the eternal feast of heaven. All right, and this is at least some of what he's referring to when he talks about those old wineskins and new wine. The old wineskins were those rituals, the, the days of affliction that Israel had been observing for centuries since the coming of the law. But the new wine was Jesus himself. And he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it to the uttermost. And, and, and so he didn't come to do away with the practice of fasting, but his coming would forever change what fasting was all about for New Testament believers. Thus, when we fast, we shouldn't try to stuff new wine into old wineskins because it'll burst. We shouldn't try to stuff Jesus on top of some old ritual where we try to earn God's favor. Those two are incompatible. Fasting was never about coercing God into action, but especially for New Testament believers, it's to remind ourselves that something's missing, or rather someone is missing, and that someone missing is Jesus. Piper finishes his point here by saying, fasting poses the question, do we miss him? How hungry are we for him to come? The almost universal absence of regular fasting for the Lord's return is a witness to our satisfaction with the presence of the world and the absence of the Lord. The absence of fasting is indicative of our comfort with the way things are. No one fasts to express how content they are. People only fast out of dissatisfaction. And our satisfaction with the world is what my first sermon was all about. And our longing for Jesus is what this sermon is all about. That's the main point of fasting. There, every other purpose is secondary. Now, there are other purposes, and we'll look at those in a minute. But my sermon will have failed if we don't walk away knowing why we continue to fast today. It's because Jesus is gone, and we long for him to return. And nothing is as important to us as his return. Nothing, nothing even is critical to daily life as food. Jesus, uh, that's what he meant when he said the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away and then they will fast. It's his absence that prompts us to fast. And so if we as a church fast on January 29th for no other reason to express our dissatisfaction with the world and our longing for Jesus to return, that would be sufficient on its own. And if you start to make fasting a regular part of your life as a way for you to cry out with your body and soul that you want Jesus, that'd be glorious in the sight of God. Jesus told us, my flesh is true food. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And this is why our fasting from earthly food is more about feasting on Jesus than it is about avoiding eating. And with that very important baseline in place, we can now look at two of the more practical benefits of fasting. And as I mentioned earlier, one is found in what we fast against, while the second is found in what we fast for. So let's start with what we fast against. In short, we fast against our flesh. Now, a theological term for this is the mortification of the flesh. And this concept is littered throughout the Pauline epistles. And it certainly involved much more than just fasting. But fasting is certainly one way that we have to counteract our flesh. Now, the most common fasts involve abstaining from food for a certain length of time. But as we already read in Scripture, it already, it went far beyond just food itself. In the Old Testament, fasting also involved abstaining from work and sex. And and while we should never take a legalistic view of what fasting involves, we should understand what's one of the main effects of doing without. And that is, it teaches our flesh that there's more important things to life than what we can taste, see, and touch By choosing to go a day or more without food and entertainment, we're removing common distractions in our life from God's eternal truths. And we're subjecting our flesh to the discipline of our spirit. This is why I would encourage any of us who choose to fast on the 29th to not only watch our food intake that day, but also our media intake. Because I would make the argument that there's very little fasting of the soul being done if we merely avoid food, but keep our minds occupied with things of the world. TV, social media, news, sports. Again, the goal here is not legalism. And so each one of us has to decide in our own heart before God what we should consume that day. I merely make the point that food is just one common ingredient to our busy hearts. But whether we remove food or media or anything else that can distract our hearts, I have to caution us against believing that fasting is always helpful in mortifying the flesh. Because it isn't. We can fast in such a way that renders it completely useless. Paul gives a stern warning against making rules that promote self-made religion. Now, I read this passage just a few weeks ago, but it's so important, and I want to reread it. Colossians two twenty through 23 warns us of thinking that fasting, or any other strict regimen on its own, overcomes the flesh. He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So how could Paul say that rules like, do not taste, have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, but I say that fasting is a way for us to mortify our flesh. I mean, aren't those two statements in direct conflict with each other? To so that, I'd say, it all comes down to motives. Are we fasting to prove our spiritual worth? Or are we doing it to identify with Christ? Because Paul also says things like Romans eight, twelve, and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And in these verses, Paul isn't talking about fasting specifically, but fasting is one way for us to say with Christ, man doesn't live by bread alone, by flesh alone, but by the word of God and his spirit within us. And fasting is a way for us to train our bodies to live against the flesh and live by the spirit. In essence, we're saying no to the flesh so that we can say yes to the spirit. When we experience hunger pangs in a fast, then we quickly become aware of how consuming the thought of feeding our flesh really is. In that moment, we have a choice. We can either give in to the flesh and end our fast, or we can say, God, I want you more. And this is a valuable test of our spiritual resolve and what we value most. See, it's very easy for us to think of our spiritual life as stronger than it actually is if we never put ourselves to the test. For example, we, we could think that we're a patient person, not quick to anger, but how slow is our anger when God gives us children who disobey us? Or we could think that we trust God well, but how well do we trust God when we get that cancer diagnosis or we lose our job? See, our spiritual lives are not nearly as strong as we might like to think. And this is why we need to test the value of our hearts through spiritual disciplines like fasting. Because when we're hungry, the fleshly impulses that are deep inside of us, they come out pretty quickly. And fasting reminds us of how weak we really still are and how much we need a Savior. And this is why we fast against the flesh, to mortify the flesh. But fasting also prepares us for an even harder sacrifice down the road. Now, this might not be important if we don't think life with Christ is going to be one of sacrifice. But if we assume that harder days are in store for us, then it would be wise for us to prepare our body's nail for such days. John Piper puts it this way. We easily deceive ourselves that we love God unless our love is frequently put to the test, and we must show our preferences not merely with words but with sacrifice. And many small acts of preferring fellowship with God above food can form a habit of communion and contentment that makes one ready for the ultimate sacrifice. So when Jesus tells us, if anyone desires to come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. How are we going to take up our cross if we can't even deny ourselves in more minor things? If we can't even deny our craving for food and entertainment for one day, how are we going to deny ourselves of even more important things when we're called to do so? And in this way, fasting teaches us to deny ourselves and train ourselves, our bodies, for even harder service to God. And so, as we fast together on January 29th, let's remember these two benefits of mortifying the flesh. Number one, fasting helps us cry out, not by flesh, but by your word, O Lord, do I live. Number two, fasting helps us proclaim, my body's not my own. Father, use it for your service. Now, I know the temptation is so great for us to turn this into self-made religion. So I have to warn us again and again of what's already been said. The effectiveness of our fasting that day is going to come down to the motivations behind it. If we're fasting to prove our spiritual worth, or we're fasting to earn God's favor, or we're fasting to coerce God into action, then our fasting is useless. It's more like a hunger strike. And it'd be wise for us just to stop fasting altogether. But if instead we rest in God's love for us, we stand secure in Christ's sacrifice for us, then we can fast that day knowing that this world is not our home and we want more than it has to offer. We can put to death the deeds of the body so that by his spirit we may live. And in this way, we fast against the flesh that we can feast with our coming bridegroom. And that takes us to the second benefit of fasting. Not what we fast against, but what we fast for. Now, when we think about sports, we don't criticize an athlete who trains his body hard, never giving up to receive the ultimate award, a championship, a gold medal, a world record. I mean, such athletes are stories of inspiration for us. But for whatever reason, Christians have a bad habit of feeling guilty, like we shouldn't be motivated by spiritual rewards. Uh, we tend to think that we have to serve God altruistically with no personal benefit to us, that it's greedy for us to want good things in our life. Now, this might come from our Protestant heritage of fighting works-based salvation. I'm not really sure. And it's right to affirm that we are never saved by the good works of our lives. We're saved by Christ alone. But Scripture never indicates that Christians shouldn't be motivated to live for rewards. In fact, it says just the opposite. We should be motivated by the good rewards that our Father has in store for those who seek Him. It's not selfish to want good in our life. In fact, this is a God-given desire, and one that he gives us so that we might reach out to Him as our greatest good. And this is evident in one of the most foundational verses about faith in the Bible, Hebrews 11:6. "And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him." Now why would God say such a thing if he didn't want us to be motivated by rewards? I, I, in fact, he says that those who believe God is a rewarder are the very ones who have pleasing faith. Do you hear that? God is pleased with children who look to him expecting a reward. And why is that? Because it's in God's very nature to give rewards. He loves to bless his children. He's not a stingy being who begrudges having to give good things to servants. Instead, he's a good father who delights in showering his kids with the very best gifts. And we as kids should never feel guilty about desiring those gifts, those rewards. I mean, what good parent would want their child to feel guilty about being the beneficiary of their generosity? No one. No one. It doesn't instead bring joy to our hearts as a parent to see our child rejoice in the good things that we offer to them. And of course, we know the answer is yes for us. And the same truth resonates in our pursuit of God. So a benefit number one of fasting is that we mortify the flesh. Benefit number two is that we receive a reward. And this might be even more important than mortifying the flesh. Because yes, fasting does help us empty our bodies of things of the world. But even more, it helps fill our souls with things from heaven. This is why fasting is so much more than just a temporary diet. Don't let it be for you just about a temporary diet. It really is a feast of the soul. Do we see fasting that way? So I want us to go to a a second Bible passage that really frames this second benefit of fasting. In Matthew 6, 16 through 18, Jesus gives another key discourse on fasting. It's quite different from the Matthew 9 one. But he says here in Matthew 6, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now a few weeks ago, we looked at how the pride of life drives us to seek the praise of man. Such is the reward of a religious hypocrite who lives or and fasts to be seen by others. See, the hypocrite hopes that others might see them and be impressed by their spiritual fervor. They long to be complimented on their spiritual maturity. And the truth is, others might even look up to them as Christian examples. But if this attention is what's the aim of our hearts, God knows it. And that temporary praise of man is all the reward we're gonna get. It's like the instantaneous high that comes from a drug hit. It might tickle our craving for a time, but it's gonna crash. And then we're just gonna need another hit. And such is the way of the religious hypocrite who lives off the attention of others. And while with this kind of spiritual hypocrisy is a dagger to our souls, Jesus doesn't say that it's wrong for us to fast to be seen. In fact, he says just the opposite. He says we should fast to be seen, but not by mankind, but by our Father who's in secret. And this Father sees the secret places, and he rewards the heart who yearns for him. I read this John Piper quote three weeks ago. Fast with the clear intention of being seen by God. As Jesus teaches it, fasting is an intensely Godward act. Do it toward God who sees when others don't. And this truth should really affect the posture of our hearts on the 29th. Is our fasting Godward or usward? When we're in the middle of a fast and our body is grumbling for food, we should direct our spiritual eyes to God and say, Father, see my fasting. Don't let it go to waste. Please reward me with something more lasting than this food that I'm doing without. God doesn't hear such a prayer and think, how dare they ask me to reward their fasting? They should be doing it to prove their dedication to me, not to get something from me. It's so presumptuous. That's not how God is. Instead, he's saying to the heavenly council, look, look at my child, look how desperate they are for me. How awesome would it be to give them even more than they're asking? Let's do it. Which narrative do we believe about God? Is he begrudging? Is he critical? Is he stingy? No. Our God is affectionate. He's gracious. He's generous. And this should change how we fast forever. Because when we fast, we're fasting to receive a reward from an affectionate, gracious, generous father. This truth should make all the difference for us on the 29th of January. Because as we go without food and entertainment for God on that day, we can be confident to fast, knowing that he's going to give us something far better than that food and entertainment we do without. He's going to answer that prayer but we do need to understand this word reward so that we can understand what we can expect to receive from God on the day of our fasting. Now, there's so many different references to rewards and gifts in Scripture. We don't have time to look at them all. But there's rewards that we receive in the present as well as rewards we receive in the future. And I want to look at briefly at both of those just as real benefits of fasting. The first is our present reward. Again, Jesus tells us very clearly that when we fast to be seen by our fathers and secret, he will reward us. And so what is that reward that we receive today in the moment of our fasting? Well, it goes back to the central purpose of fasting. We fast to feast on Jesus. We abstain to obtain more of him. And so with our fasting, we declare to our bodies, no, no, you are not our main reality. There's something way more important than filling up my flesh. We need Jesus way more than we need food. And when we fast and pray in such a way, how do we think God responds? Well, Jesus tells us in the very next chapter of Matthew, after telling us to fast to be seen by God, he tells us in Matthew 7, 7 through 11, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you? If his son asks him for bread, we'll give him a stone. If he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now in the Luke version of this very same sermon, we're told, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I mean, do you hear the language that Jesus is using? Again, our Heavenly Father is generous. He's willing to bless the heart who seeks him and his reward. And what's the good thing that he gives those who ask? It's his Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. God gives us more of himself. And this is an enormous statement for those of us that are going to fast on the 29th. Because you can be assured that if you fast to be seen by God that day, if you seek him with all your heart, then he will give you more of himself. You're going to get more of God. I didn't say it. Jesus says it. And if that's not motivation enough to fast, I don't know what is. Now, we do not need to understand on a practical level, what does getting more of God look like? There's so many ramifications for such a statement. But I want to take a very well-known passage in Romans 12, 2 as just one example of this. We're told there, "Do do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we're told to be transformed by the renewing of your mind by not conforming to the pattern of this world. And what's more antithetical to the pattern of this world than fasting? John Piper puts it this way, fasting in America and other prosperous Western nations is almost incomprehensible because we're brainwashed by consumer culture. We're taught to experience the good life by consuming, not by renouncing consumption. Therefore, fasting is barely thinkable except as a weight loss fad or a new age enhancement for higher consciousness, both of which are embedded in a consumer culture. So when we choose to renounce consumption for a day, then we're going against the pattern of this world so that our minds might be transformationally renewed. And this should make sense because if we receive more of the Holy Spirit when we ask God, then we're going to start to think more like Him. And this is one of the very present rewards of fasting, that we will receive more of God so that we might start to think more like God. And in some in this way, fasting is really about changing the thoughts of our minds. That's just one of the glorious present rewards of fasting. But there's so many other present rewards as well. I mean we see in the scriptures healing that comes through fasting or victory in battle or discernment of God's will. And there's so many other present rewards. God loves to answer the prayers of his people with good gifts. He's not holding back on us or begrudging us. Is this the God you fast for? But in addition to these rewards in the present life, there's also rewards in the future life. Remember how fasting is the future-oriented counterpart to the past-oriented Lord's Supper? This was because of what Jesus said about fasting in Matthew 9. He said, when the bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast. And why would they fast? Because they're dissatisfied with his absence and they long for his return. They don't hunger for anything that this world has to offer in comparison to him. They're love-struck. Now, to understand this picture, think about a bride-to-be on the eve of her wedding night. Now, many of you ladies in the room might well remember the night before your wedding. There might have been some anxiety over the details of the day to come, but there was probably also some nervous excitement. Right. Any bride who's truly in love with a bridegroom is going to be looking forward with great anticipation to being united with her husband. And very few women in that situation are going to be gorging themselves at the table the night before. Right? They might pick at their food or even have no appetite at all. And why is that? Because their heart is full of love, wonder, excitement. If food is the last thing that you crave at a time like this. And so it is to be for us. We're on the eve of our wedding day, right? We're craving something more that's coming. And obviously, we can't sustain ourselves on a wedding eve diet all the time. And I know we all go through the ebbs and flows of spiritual fervor. But as we mature in the Lord, our craving for the Lord should only grow. Our anticipation for the coming bridegroom should get stronger with each passing year. Has it for you? Is your longing for Jesus to return growing in your soul? If not, we have to ask the question, do we really hunger for Jesus at all? When when we, the church, take our eyes off the world and put them on Jesus, it changes our appetite completely. We stop stuffing ourselves now so that we're ready for the wedding feast to come. We start to recognize how empty the things of this world really are, and we start to live for the things that are going to last in the next And this is the future reward of fasting today. The heart that cries out in a fast, God, I want you more, is the heart that's going to be blessed. Our bridegroom's gone away, but he's gone away to prepare a home for us. And at the fullness of time, he's going to come back, riding that white stallion to carry up his beloved bride to the banquet hall of eternity. This is the inheritance of the saints. Jesus asked so long ago, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Well, if that was true for the wedding guests, how much more so for the bride? We're the bride of Christ, waiting for his return. Now, he's gone right now, and so we fast, but that ends the day he returns. See, fasting is temporary. There's always a break from our fast. We do without food for a time to remind our flesh that there's more than than it has to offer. But we always come back to food, and the same's going to be true for us in heaven. We're going to find the true food of our soul. See, Jesus, right before he went away, he said, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Do you hear that? Jesus is fasting, waiting for his second return as well. He's not consuming. He's waiting. How glorious is that new wine going to be? Jesus is looking forward to it too. And he can't wait to eat and drink with us in the new kingdom. On that day of fasting, or on that day, our fasting is going to be done forever. We're we're not going to have to do without anything any longer. Because we're going to be with our God, who is everything forever. And it's going to be said on that day, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Do you hear that? Those old wineskins are passing away. The new wine's coming. And just like Jesus said, all mourning and all fasting is going to end on that day because then the feast is served. Say, do you see him in the distance? Jesus is coming back. Our bridegroom's on his way. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. But he's not here yet. And so we fast. Will you pray with me? Father, I I just thank you for your glorious word. It thrills my soul just to, to contemplate our future. Our eyes are fixed on temporary things so often, God, but when we take them off that and set them in the heavenly places, we see how glorious is that inheritance for the saints. We see that you, Jesus, are coming. You've told us again and again and again that you're coming, and we can't wait for that day. So God, prepare our hearts. Prepare our hearts for that coming, but we long for it every fiber of our being. You told us that when you go away, then we're fasting. And we fast because, God, we fast from this world because we know it just doesn't fill us. It's empty. And So I pray, Father, that you would show us as a church how to fast for you, how to long for you, how to be filled with you Father, I pray that you would teach us how to fast just as you taught your disciples and taught them how to pray as well. That I pray for this upcoming week as a church, as we fast on the 29th, Father, that you would fill us with more of yourself. You told us that you will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask, and I'm asking that now. Father, we need more of you. I pray, Father, for any who are here today who haven't tasted of your goodness. And I ask, Father, that they would taste and see that you're good. They'd come to the banquet table. They'd recognize that whatever they're stuffing themselves with, it's going to be empty. They would see that you are the bread from heaven. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Please bring us back bring us back, bring us back. And even as we participate in the Lord's Supper, Father, we remember that you came, Jesus, to rescue us from our sins, and we thank you. And in the same way, when we choose not to eat, Father, may we do it so that we look forward to that future feast in heaven. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your word. We don't live by bread alone, but by this word that you've given us today. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. As you reflect on the message this week, feel free to reach out to our staff by emailing care at copperfieldchurch.com. We would love to hear from you and pray for you. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and our other podcast, Equipped for Good. Thanks for listening.